This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. This is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can take a look at the mental health and personality characteristics of Eileen Warnus. So she's been referred to as the first predatory female serial killer. Now, she was a real person, of course, so just a reminder that I'm not diagnosing anybody, only speculating about what could be happening in a situation like this. So whenever we see a case like this that's exceedingly popular, this case has inspired books and movies, we have to be particularly careful because a lot of artistic license is applied to those products, and often people who write them really don't understand the important concepts related to the case, like, in this case, psychopathy and narcissism, which is one of the many reasons I focus on the research literature when looking at information for these videos. And of course, I'll put the references to the articles I used in the description for this video. So when I first got the request for this video, it was probably around nine months ago. And I read some of the research literature on the case. I took a break from this case for a while, came back and looked at it again. So I've probably sat down and worked on this particular video maybe 10 to 12 times over the last nine months. And one of the reasons I did that, kind of worked in small amounts of time, and then kind of put it all together here at the end, was because I really wanted to reflect on the nature of this case. It's a case unlike any other that we see. Again, a predatory female serial killer. And there's such an extensive history available with this case, I really wanted to make sure I reflected on every component and added all the value I could in terms of understanding this particular case. So with that in mind, I'm going to have a quick overview here of the typical understanding of female killers. I'm going to look at the timeline for this case. Again, it's a huge case, a lot of history, so I'm going to try to compress this in a way that kind of makes sense for this video. And then I'm going to analyze the case in terms of mental health and personality. So first, the overview on female killers. Usually when we hear about a woman who commits murder, it's in the context of an abusive relationship. Perhaps she was a victim of domestic violence and was fighting back. Perhaps her actions are justified. Maybe not. But either way, that's a popular situation in which we see female killers being discussed. Or sometimes we see them being discussed in the context of a conspiracy with a man. So for example, a man and a woman say they're in a romantic relationship, and maybe they rob banks together or rob stores together. And in the commission of one of those robberies, the man commits a murder, or the woman does. But either way, the theory would be, but not for that relationship with the man, the woman would not be a killer. Rarely do we hear about female killers who are predatory, where there's no self-defense reason given. No defense can be argued on that basis. So again, predatory means that somebody's seeking out other people and killing them. Also, we seldom hear about serial homicide perpetrated by women. So the research literature on this topic really doesn't tell us enough. There are few women who fit this category, predatory serial killing, and the articles that we do have tend to emphasize victimization aspects, like that intimate partner violence aspect I talked about. 
and not some of the other personality constructs that may be at work. No matter which aspects they look at, they almost never talk about women killing for material reasons. So that's what really I think makes this case unique. Not only do you have somebody who's predatory, a serial killer, but after the killings, Eileen Warnos took money, right? So there was a material gain as part of these murders. So now moving to the timeline. We see that Eileen Warnos was born on February 29, 1956 in Michigan. Until the age of 11, she believed that her maternal grandparents were her parents. Eileen and her older brother, Keith, he was 11 months older, were brutally victimized by her grandfather for many years. Eileen was often beaten and sometimes was beaten for consecutive days, so she didn't really even have a chance to heal physically before being beaten again, right? So a particularly cruel grandfather. In addition to the physical abuse, there was also verbal abuse. Later, Eileen would allege that there was sexual abuse as well, but some of those claims, particularly the ones against the grandfather, were never substantiated. Now, the grandmother really wasn't an active part of Eileen's life. She appeared to have an alcohol use disorder. She didn't do anything to stop the abuse caused by the grandfather. Eileen described her grandmother as frail and nervous. Now, I talked about how Eileen thought that her grandparents were her parents until age 11. At that age, she was told that Diane Warnus, who Eileen thought was her sister, was actually her mother. Eileen's real father was Leo Dale Pittman. She never met him. He was in prison when she was born. He had a long history of violence and an explosive temper. He was eventually convicted of kidnapping and sex offenses and committed suicide in prison. When Leo went to prison, Diane, again Eileen's mother, tried to be a single mother. She was 15 years old. When Eileen and Keith were at the house of one of Diane's friends, Diane went out for dinner and never came back. She returned when she was 18, when Diane was 18, but the relationship between Diane and her parents was too unstable. There was too much arguing and contentiousness there. When Eileen was two years old and Keith was three, Diane left them with a babysitter and never returned. During Eileen's pre-adolescent and adolescent years, she was described as being combative, incorrigible, and unpredictable. She had frequent unprovoked anger outbursts, and she also engaged in sex acts with boys at school in exchange for loose change and cigarettes. Evidently, Eileen and Keith had a relationship in which they were protective of one another, but they frequently fought with each other, and some witnesses reported that Keith sexually abused Eileen. So just like the allegations against the grandfather, these were never substantiated. When Eileen was a teenager, she had frequent encounters with law enforcement. She shoplifted, was frequently intoxicated, was thrown out of parties for starting fights. She was nearly universally disliked at her school and other social settings, and she had no friends. Shortly after she turned 15, she gave birth. A number of rumors were out there about who the father was. There was this idea that it was a neighbor, that it was Keith, her brother, the grandfather, or an older man who lived in the community but we never really find out for sure. At the grandfather's request, the baby was immediately given up for adoption. Shortly after this, Eileen was displaced from her grandparents' home and she dropped out of school. Eileen's grandmother died of liver failure not long after this, likely due to alcohol consumption. At age 16, Eileen started a cross-country trip that eventually would take her to Florida. At age 18, while in Colorado, 
She was arrested for disorderly conduct, DUI, and firing a 22 caliber pistol at a moving vehicle. At age 20, so now we're in 1976 and in Florida, Eileen married a man who was 69 years old. About a month later, the man filed for divorce, and he filed a restraining order. He accused Eileen of beating him with his own cane. Eileen went back to Michigan, was arrested for assault and disturbing the peace. Three days after this arrest, her brother Keith died of throat cancer. Eileen received $10,000 from the life insurance policy from Keith. It was gone within two months. She bought a number of things, including a new car that she totaled shortly thereafter. Now, after this, she moved frequently, and sometimes she lived with her aunt, Lori, and her husband. Of course, she thought of Lori as her sister because she believed she was her sister until age 11, until Eileen was 11. When she did live with Lori, she really never helped out around the house. She didn't do any of the chores. She didn't have regular employment, and she was threatening and aggressive, mostly to men, including Lori's husband. In 1981, when Eileen was 25, she robbed a convenience store in Edgewater, Florida. She took two packs of cigarettes and $35 in cash. She was charged with robbery with a deadly weapon and sentenced to three years in prison. She was released in 1983. She didn't serve all three years. Shortly thereafter, she was arrested for forging two checks with values totaling over $5,500. In 1986, she was charged with obstruction of justice, stealing a car, and resisting arrest. About six months later, she was accused of pointing a gun at a man and demanding money from him. Eileen was extremely active in prostitution, sometimes engaging in acts of prostitution between 25 and 30 times a day. It was during this time that Sharia met Tyria Moore. She referred to her as Ty Moore. The two formed a romantic relationship that lasted for four and a half years. They moved from hotel to hotel, engaged in a lot of alcohol consumption, they were violent, and the relationship was characterized by jealousy and grandiosity. In 1987, the two were questioned about an assault and battery at a bar. Eileen referred to her partnership with Ty as being similar to Bonnie and Clyde, predicting they would be famous someday and probably have a book written about them. Now, moving into her 30s, Eileen was starting to look haggard. She was extremely overweight, and she reported that she wasn't able to attract the same type of man that she was able to attract in the past, and she found this to be demoralizing. Now, in 1989, she started murdering her victims, and these victims were individuals who were soliciting Eileen as a prostitute. So they were Eileen's customers, in effect. She murdered seven in total by the year 1990. The circumstances of each murder were actually fairly similar. Eileen would linger on a road in Florida until a man would stop and offer her a ride. While in the car, Eileen would tell the man that she was a prostitute and that she needed money. The victim would drive to an area that was more or less secluded. Eileen would start getting undressed. There would be some physical contact. While the men were taking their clothes off, Eileen would exit out of the passenger side of the vehicle with her belongings. She would yell at the victim, saying that she knew the victim was trying to rape her, and then she would shoot the victim with a 22 caliber revolver as many times as it took for them to die. In July of 1990, Eileen and Ty Moore were in an accident while driving one of the murder victim's cars. The police eventually tracked them down in January of 1991. They offered Moore a deal in which she would be immune from prosecution if she could get Eileen to confess. After a few telephone calls, which were recorded, Eileen confessed to the killings, 
but she claimed that all the killings were in self-defense. After she was arrested, she told the police a number of different versions about her crimes, including saying that she was defending herself, she said that she didn't want to leave any witnesses to a robbery, and there are versions where she said she murdered them because she was angry when they refused to have sex with her. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. So in terms of her defense, in terms of her criminal defense, she really didn't do herself any favors with all these different versions, again, that she was telling to the police. Now, I won't go through all the detail of what happened in the court proceedings. They're actually pretty complicated, in part because there are so many charges here and so many hearings. And I think it doesn't add a lot of value in terms of understanding the mental health and the personality side of this case. Essentially, evidence that could have helped Eileen with her case was not allowed to be used in court, and evidence that probably should have been suppressed was used, like her extensive criminal history. The one part of the court proceedings I think that really is related to mental health is that Eileen was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder, but that didn't seem to make any difference in terms of her sentence. Eventually Eileen was convicted of all seven murders and she received seven death sentences. While she was in prison awaiting execution, she said a number of things that could be indicative of psychosis. She also became involved with a few people, and these people are really beyond the scope of the video, but there are a few people that appeared to exploit Eileen. They appeared to be selling her story to the highest bidder, so there were some bad situations there while she was awaiting execution. Now, Eileen petitioned the Supreme Court to end all her appeals, so she wanted to be executed. She didn't want to go through the appeals process anymore and delay the execution. She said that she was guilty and that she would do it again, right? So toward the end, she admitted to the killings, but there's this idea that maybe she only admitted to them because she wanted to speed up the execution. She was executed in 2002. She was 46 years old. So we see a lot of media products produced because of this case, the movie Monster. We see two fairly popular documentaries the Selling of a Serial Killer, 1992, and Eileen, Life and Death of a Serial Killer, 2003. So in terms of the mental health and personality aspects of this case, there's really so much to cover here. It's an incredibly complex case. The question a lot of people have is what contributed to Eileen becoming a killer? It's such a rare event for a woman to become a serial killer in the first place, right? And of course, we see with Eileen, 
seven killings, so she more than qualified for this title, serial killer. And she had an extensive criminal history before that. So a lot of people look at the abuse, and I think, of course, this makes sense. Now, a lot of females are abused when they are children. This, unfortunately, is not unusual. But was there something different in the case of Eileen? Was her trauma worse than what we typically see? Now, looking at her trauma history, I would say it is among the worst I've ever heard of, right? This is a particularly disturbing traumatic history. Now, of course, it's kind of morbid to compare one trauma history against another because everybody's experience of trauma is different. But I think really by any measure, her history was so awful that there could be really any number of things in it that could have led to her behavior. Was there a genetic component here? Probably, if we look at the behavior of her father, Leo, we see that there may be some psychopathic and antisocial characteristics there, but there's no way to know exactly what that contribution was. The obvious etiology, the cause, I mentioned here, would be the repeated physical, emotional, and sexual trauma. Eileen endured these type of traumatic experiences for years. And this, of course, would include her experiences with prostitution. What did she have in terms of mental health disorders and personality? Well, remember, she was diagnosed with borderline and antisocial personality disorder. If we look at antisocial personality disorder, this seems fairly clear. She really has all of the symptoms of the disorder. Repeated unlawful behaviors, lying, impulsivity, aggressiveness, a disregard for safety, irresponsibility, and a lack of remorse. So all seven of the symptom criteria for antisocial personality disorder. Now, with borderline personality disorder, it's hard to know. Certainly, the anger was there. But we don't have a lot of information about idealization and devaluation. That may have been there. The frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, we have a little bit supporting that. Paranoia, maybe a little bit. So it's not really perfectly clear from the information we have. But she was diagnosed with it, so I imagine whoever diagnosed her did believe she met enough of the symptom criteria to have the disorder. Now, it's interesting to me that narcissistic personality disorder was never diagnosed in this case. There are a number of symptoms that appear to be present. Grandiosity, sense of entitlement, tendency to be manipulative, lack of empathy, jealousy, and fantasies of success and power. So maybe because she already had two cluster B personality disorders, whoever was treating her didn't want to add a third. I don't know, but that seems like a fairly clear omission, right? The narcissistic personality disorder diagnosis. That certainly should have at least been considered. I'm surprised we don't see much mention of post-traumatic stress disorder as a possibility. Certainly she would have met the qualifying trauma symptom criterion. But again, we don't have much information about some of the other possible symptoms. I mentioned before that she had signs of psychosis while awaiting execution, specifically paranoid delusions about what some people in the prison may be doing to her. This appeared to be a departure from her behavior before her incarceration, but we really can't be sure. So this could have been caused by all the stress of being incarcerated on death row. Now, Eileen was mistreated from the very beginning. She never bonded in a healthy way with her caregivers, now going back to her childhood. So she had some attachment problems, like the development of an avoidant, dismissive attachment style. We see this is related to having hostility, social withdrawal, impulsivity, and detachment symptoms that it seems like she did have. Just looking at the relationship with the grandfather, if we consider attachment theory, what did Eileen learn from her grandfather? 
She learned that she was despised by people who were supposed to love and care for her. She learned that people who were supposed to love her would reject her, hurt her, and terrorize her. She learned not to trust anybody, trusting wasn't a smart move for her if she wanted to survive. And she learned that someone who was physically aggressive had the power in a relationship. If we think about how attachment problems can lead to certain characteristics like anger, Eileen's behavior really starts to make a lot of sense. Furthermore, because she developed anger at such a young age, that prevented her from forming other relationships that could have been helpful. She was alienated by others in part because she was so angry. Now there's a lot out there specifically about psychopathy and Eileen Warnus. So psychopathy has a relationship with antisocial personality disorder, and one could really argue that antisocial personality disorder correlates with factor two psychopathy. And of course, Eileen appeared to have both factor one and factor two traits. From factor one psychopathy, she appeared to have callous on emotional traits. Again, she was manipulative, a pathological liar, she had fearless dominance, and she lacked remorse. From factor two, she was impulsive, irresponsible, neurotic, emotionally reactive, criminal, and sensation-seeking. Sometimes factor two psychopathy is called sociopathy. There were some interesting things about our criminal history, like so many people that we see who have severe psychopathic traits. We see here in terms of crime, Eileen started out with lower level crimes and moved up. She worked her way up to more severe crimes, including murder. So often I hear people say about serial killers, this person just started killing out of nowhere. And I guess that could happen, but usually there's a pattern of increasingly violent offenses. And of course, again, that's exactly what we see in the case of Eileen Warnus. So to sum up what we understand here in this case, what happened to Eileen? Well, it appears there was a genetic component at work. You see the horrible repeated trauma, the attachment issues with everybody that she met. She really didn't even have one person that she could trust. And we see a system that despite all these charges and convictions didn't appear to be alarmed. I mean the criminal justice system here. Perhaps it was because she was a female and the people in the justice system thought that a female couldn't become a serious offender. But either way, it seems fairly clear she was never taken seriously and never received any effective mental health treatment. In a sense, all these components came together and created a situation that led to Eileen's first murder. Her whole life, she had been abused and mistreated. With this first murder, she was taking control. She wasn't going to be harmed. She had been on the defensive for so long, and that wasn't working. And of course, she wanted the money. She did, after all, kill for material gain. She rationalized that this victim had it coming. Her schema, her cognitive distortions, her way of seeing the world made it easy for her to see the first victim as a potential aggressor, someone whose life did not have any value. Once she killed him and was able to take his money and other property, she had no experience of empathy, remorse, or guilt. So from her way of thinking, it made sense to keep manifesting the same behavior. She wanted more money, so she continued to kill and take the money. She did know right from wrong. She attempted to evade the police. She realized that what she was doing was not acceptable to society. But without any empathy, knowing right from wrong was really not enough. There are a number of areas that we can learn about here from the case of Eileen Warnus. We learn how much damage can be done early on, like in somebody's childhood. We learn about the importance of effective parenting to prevent that. Something, of course, Eileen never had. We learn about how horrible people can treat one another. Eileen was treated horribly, and of course she murdered seven people. They were victims as well. With this in mind, we learn about how the abuse that Eileen endured 
eventually extended to affect the lives of other people. Her mistreatment, combined with other factors, resulted in seven people being murdered. And, of course, after this, Eileen lost her own life as well. We can learn about how criminal behavior tends to escalate over time. This means that we do often have warnings before somebody engages in this type of behavior, although, unfortunately, often these warnings are ignored. We also learn about the dangers of having somebody with both extreme psychopathy and extreme narcissism. So regardless of what causes these traits, it's an extremely destructive combination. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.